Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 201, we are covering the second half of Senlin Ascends, the first of the Books of Babel by Josiah Bancroft. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and back for this episode is Lauren McCaffrey. Hey guys. Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and much more. Now, for a summary of the second half of this book. With the help of the artist Ogier, Thomas Senlin escapes the baths aboard an airship bound for New Babel with a cargo of unfortunate women set to be sold to brothels. When they arrive at the next ringdom up, Thomas signs his real name in the manifest, and the port guard, Iron, ooh, actually, how's her name pronounced in the audiobook? Is it Iron? Erin? Uh, I think it's Erin. Erin, the Amazon lady? Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm trying to think because it's been two days. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I always pronounced it Iron. I'll have to, like, see what feels right to me when I'm... <laughs> anyway, she recognizes his name. Sandlin tries to escape into New Babel, but he accidentally enters a drug den. While he's hallucinating about Maria, Iron catches up and captures him. He comes to in time to meet Finn Gall, the same man from the basement who gave Senlin some sage advice about trust. Gall basically owns this area of New Babel, and he recruits Senlin to be his new portmaster. There, Senlin runs into Adam, who, despite his previous treachery, becomes Senlin's right-hand man. Together, over the coming months, they get Port Gall operating much more smoothly. During this time, however, Senlin discovers that Adam's sister, Voletta, is a captured performer at a brothel and showhouse in New Babel. Disgusted by Rodion, the master of the house, Senlin resolves to rescue Voletta and get both her and Adam out from under Gaul's thumb. While he's planning on ways to steal and crew an airship, Senlin is attacked by the Red Hand. He is saved by the timely help of Adam and the rest of the dock workers, but Senlin now knows that somebody in New Babel sold him out to Commissioner Pound. He begins teaching Iron how to read in return for her training in combat. Meanwhile, Senlin hatches a plan to expose Rodion, distract Gaul, and flee with his friends and Ogier's painting. On the eve of the day, a new ship arrives, the Stone Cloud, and Edith is the first mate. She lost her arm to gangrene after the branding in the parlor, and it has been replaced by a magical clockwork arm. Senlin convinces her to help him. The next day, Gaul sends Iron to confront Senlin about raising the dock workers' wages. Senlin convinces Gaul to let him live while tipping him off about Rodion's duplicity. He returns to the docks where his drug-trapped decoy box gets loaded onto the ship. First, the captain of the ship and then Rodion try to steal it, but a battle breaks out between the crew and Rodion's stagehands. Into that fracas wades Iron, Gaul, and the dock workers, before Adam reveals that he was the one who betrayed Senlin to Pound. Commissioner Pound arrives on board his huge airship, the Ararat, with all guns blazing. Gaul flees, Iron squares off with the red hand, and Senlin briefly faces down Pound. As a snowstorm blows in, the Ararat rips free from the dock with Pound aboard, and Edith defeats the Red Hand, dropping him off the side of the tower. Thomas, Adam, Voletta, Iron, and Edith board the Stone Cloud, bound for the Ringdom of Pelthia, with the painting safely in hand. So, uh, very different second half of the book. Yes. Um, I'm grateful. I, I definitely got a laugh out of it when, like... You know, I, I immediately picked the book back up after recording the first episode and was devouring it. And in like three chapters, 
all of my predictions and assumptions, maybe not all, but a lot of them are just like, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> it's like, I made a whole point about how much I liked the, the way he wasn't like assembling like a team going along and how he was just like using somebody and leaving them behind. And then everybody came back <laughs> and I he was, formed a team. I was happy as well to see Ojir actually help him. Like I thought he was going to, I had a good feeling. Oh yeah. The, and the one character that I thought was going to go with Senlin was Ogier and he did not, he stayed behind and, and got tortured and killed. The way he, okay. So the way we left off, he felt like he was saying goodbye to Senlin. Yeah, I mean, clearly he was, apparently. <laughs> I didn't read it that way initially, but... Uh, and apparently he wasn't the real Ogier. He was a... If if Commissioner Pound is to be believed, he is a fraud. I, an imitator. Okay, so at first I doubted that, and then I thought back to how he laughed at the mock-up that Ojir did. Yeah. And I I believe him. Yeah, I kind of believe Pound as well. I, I think he's I think he is a fake. But but anyway, I the these side characters, like tying back to kind of the structure and writing style of this book, it, it really did feel like a different story in like once he reached New Babel. Yeah, um, yeah. And I I still enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed the ending. It was actually a really good um, battle scene. But I enjoyed the first half of the book more. I liked the, the journey up the tower. I liked the <laughs> new experiences and new encounters and, and the, like the second half of the book felt a little daily life humdrum. Whereas the first half was all about wonder and exploration and mystery. So man, I feel completely the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So what did you, what did you like about the second half so much? Okay. So my problems with the first half, pretty much disappeared with the second half. I like I had issues with caring for our characters and I felt out of touch with Maria. So I was losing the drive that Senlin has to go find her because uh -huh. I like I haven't I don't know her. I haven't seen her. Like awesome. You guys care about each other. Uh, but I don't care about you and Maria is long lost at this point. Yeah. You know, I was, I was struggling and I wasn't getting into the plot because we were just going from room to room and <laughs> leaving people there. Yeah. Like I had started to care about Edith and we left her. That's so funny. And then... This half, we did all the things that I needed us to do, which was show me more of the tower that I would find intriguing. Show me, like, I don't know. The build the relationships more. Build the relationships. Yeah. Show me the history. Help me see, like, why 
you guys ended up together. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we do get the whole... Yeah, immediately. Like, yeah. right after we cough, <laughs> we get, like, we I, get the story of her, Yeah. then we get the history of them, and then we get these uh, interesting parts where there's there's mystery and there's intrigue with mm-hmm. what's going on. I don't regret cutting the book where we did, but it definitely would have made for a different episode if I had known that we were two chapters from the end of a, a part of the book. And I could have just ended it after whatever part two. Uh, I, I like that we stopped that way. Or part because three. It, it felt like an immediate turnaround. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about it. Yeah, an end at that point. Yeah, it was the end of part two. Um, Well, no, I mean, we still had more chapters in part two, but it was an end to a. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I was saying if I had chosen to end it at the end of part two rather than at the end of chapter ten in part two, so we had three more chapters in part two. Yeah, I think that was a good choice, and I'm glad we did that way. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about not necessarily Maria as like a character, but Maria as a plot element. Um, and I want to get your opinion on this. So there, we're going to, we're going to get a little academic here. Uh, see, and I, okay, let me, let me admit something first. Okay. There have been times with this book where I have been worried or intimidated by the fact that the last literature class that I took was in high school and it was not the last year of high school. Oh, I, I don't think you need to worry about that for like, so what, what I'm going to get into here is, um, kind of ideas of literary criticism and how you can analyze a book from different perspectives, from different schools of thought. Well, okay. So what, what I, what I keep thinking is that there's, there are all these references that I'm missing where I think he's, I mean, I, I did read the Inferno, but I, I keep feeling like he's referencing other things that I either don't remember or, or didn't read Mm. and that I'm a step behind. See, I, I think you're fine there. Um, I think, I expected a lot more of that in this book than we've gotten. And most of the obvious references, he, he doesn't play into the literary elements you would expect. Like the character of Adam in this thematically is not very evocative of the biblical Adam. Yeah. And like I don't... you would expect, Oh, we just met Adam and he has a sister. You'd expect his name is going to be Eve or something like that. And it's not at all. You know, he, there isn't as far as we know, who knows, there may be some big reveal at the end of the series that Adam is like actually the founder of the tower or something. And he is an originator, but I kind of don't think that's going to happen. Um, but where I'm going with this whole thing is that when I am, criticizing literature on inking out loud. I am not typically like going at it from a particular like school of thought. I'm not trying to be like postmodernist or, you know, 
look at it from like a feminist theory lens or, or anything like that. But occasionally it, I think certain books, it's worth at least bringing that up. And in this case, I think looking at Sen from a feminist lens is interesting. I feel like he wants us to add in those elements. So what, what I'm, I'm not talking about adding in elements. No, what I'm no, saying no. Is, I mean, add in that perspective, add in that kind of, I don't know, the add in the literary view. And I kind of wonder if he oh, taught. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, in, I, I admittedly did not do a whole lot of research on Josiah Bancroft's like real world background. But anyway, looking at this book from a feminist lens, from a feminist perspective, uh, I think you come out of it with a very different um, impression of the story and the story becomes a lot more problematic. Hmm. And this is why like, I wanted to ask you, like, were you bothered by the fact that this is a story that has essentially taken the central female character and removed her from the story and made her a plot device rather than a human character. I don't see her as not a human character, especially in this second half where we get so much more about her. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we, yes, it's told we get her past. We don't get her present ever. Yeah. Even well, if it's recent past? Yeah. So, and, and this is the other side of the, like looking at this from a feminist lens, is that not only is she a plot device, she is the cause of this, of Thomas Semlin's story. Um, but I don't it blame is specifically, her. I'm not, I'm not blaming her. Oh, I, I'm, okay. No, I'm saying from a, like reading this from a feminist critical lens, you look at like, what are the roles of the women in the story? And her role is she gets lost and her husband has to go on uh, an adventure because she gets lost. She, and, and on top of that, she causes problems for Thomas Semlin because of her sexuality. She is going off to buy lingerie when they get split up. And then the next stage of the problem for Thomas Sinlin happens because she poses for nudes and allows herself to be recruited into a, like, wife, like, be sold off as a wife. Um, and I'm not blaming her for any of these things, but I'm saying from, from this, like, literary perspective, that is the fact of the story. She she embraces her sexuality in a way that Thomas Senlin struggles to understand and struggles to accept and it causes problems for him. And so when you're looking at the story like that, you could interpret it as female sexuality is causing problems for the male character. Okay. So the way you said that sounded like her posing for the painter for Ogier is the cause of her getting swept away. And that is not true. No, no, I'm. it's not. But it is one of a sequence of events. I kind of see him as causing her problems. <laughs> also, obviously. Thomas Semlin? Yeah. Causing, oh, for sure. 
but we don't get her story. That's the thing. Well, we get it. Yeah. Like, yeah. and and that's where if you're if you choose to look at this book from a feminist critical perspective, it could be problematic. Now, I really enjoyed this book. Um, I very rarely like do I engage with that critical lens. Um, but there, there are some times where I, like, you know, it pops into my head and I, and I have to like stop and think and consider and say like, you know, is this a problem? Is this a problem for me? I know it'll be a problem for some readers. I, I definitely know some readers who absolutely read books specifically from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And I bet they would hate this book. So I think, I think part of the difference between us and our, in the view of her is mm-hmm. that I am more attached to her, I think, than you are. Like, oh, I. Oh, yeah, probably. I, although I really enjoyed, like, some of my favorite scenes in this book are flashbacks with her. Yeah. Like, I loved the. Basically, you know, we'll get there, but three of my four favorite scenes of this book involve her. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's clearly a catch, and he's lucky. <laughs> well, it's been pretty unlucky lately. <laughs> he's lucky that to have her. Yeah, even though he doesn't have her. Even even though he doesn't have her. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get what you mean though. Um, yeah, I, so I just wanted to like ask you and see, but it, it it seems like you don't have that problem with the story. L- looking at it from that perspective. No, and honestly, I rarely look at it from that perspective. Now, if all of our female characters were the annoying, like, trope where, in fantasy, where, like, they are just, just the badass, and they're pretty much paper flat as people. Right. That gets, that I would bring up. Now, it it is something that I am, like, again reading from this perspective other than Maria we have a few important female characters in the story and none of them are like traditionally feminine yeah Edith rejects married marriage married life she wants to be the business owner she wants to be out on the farm working with her hands she becomes a pirate and a warrior yeah um iron obviously <laughs> Is, Iron, I don't think ever fit. Yeah, and then and then Voletta, even she's forced into a traditional, you know, exploitative female role, but it ever. doesn't fit her. Her whole thing is like she is the adventurous one, the the um, daredevil who will go balance on wires and and girders above dangerous train tracks, and you know, um, and so I'm kind of keeping an eye on that and, and seeing what sorts of female characters uh, Bancroft is writing into his narrative. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how the women on board the stone cloud at the end of this book evolve in the next book. If they evolve, you know, I think they will. Yeah. I, I hope they will. Uh, the, I think he's he's a talented writer. I think he's got the right ideas in mind uh, in terms of like character arcs. Um, he in just a few scenes in in the second half of this book, he complicated Adam and Fingal in really interesting ways. He complicated Edith in an interesting way when she showed back up. 
Um, so I, I think there's a lot of potential for what he can do, not just with his female characters, but with all the characters, you know, but, but when, when I'm looking at this from a feminist perspective, of course, you, you have to think about what are the roles the women are inhabiting in the story. Yeah. And I, I guess if he doesn't, if none of them grow, then the story falls flat. Yeah. Um, and and I appreciate that, like, th- this is one of the ways that, uh, you know, it- it's a stronger book, is that these side characters aren't there growing and changing just to serve Thomas's character arc. They have their own problems. They have their own stories. Yes. And they're they're doing their own things within that sphere over there, as well as overlapping with Thomas Semlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, actually, as I'm as I'm talking through this, uh, this is like the most rudimentary of um, feminist lit theory things, and it's I don't think it really has much value. Uh, but there's a the Bechdel test. Are you familiar with this? I have heard this before. Yeah. You need to remind me though. Um, so it was a it was a basic um, kind of narrative test that Alison Bechdel. Uh, came up with she she's a i'm gonna say a a queer feminist author she wrote a fairly popular um graphic novel comic book called fun home uh that's a a pseudo memoir about like her family life growing up and her um like discovering her own sexuality and like her relationship with her dad. And and it's not how, and how her home was not fun at all. Um, We read it in uh, actually a couple of different college courses, including one that you took notes for your friend in. Um, Yep. Yeah. Uh, It, it, it it got um, some critical acclaim. Um, she gained a, a fair amount of notoriety. Anyway, this this idea, the Bechdel test, is are there the 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 simplified version of it is are there two female characters who have a conversation with each other that does not touch on or include a man in any way? Huh. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, you could have two female characters, but if they're talking about one of you know one of them like dating a guy or getting married or something like that, that fails the Bechdel test. Mm. There has to be at least one conversation in the book. That is two women who can just live their lives independent of men and talk about it. Um, Obviously like there's, it's, it's like kind of a dumb thing. It's kind of a dumb test. It doesn't really say anything about the value of the book. Um, But it was one of those things, you know, like famously the Lord of the Rings fails the Bechdel test because no women in, in the Lord of the Rings talk to each other, not about men. Huh. And very rarely, if at all, in fact, it's been so long, uh, very rarely, if at all, do women even speak to each other in the Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Um, but like, okay. but I'm not going to say the Lord of the Rings is bad because it fails the Bechdel test. Like, no, it's, but that is something, you know, if, if you're going to really read from this perspective, um, criticize a book in a certain way that is one of the types of things you'd be looking for in a book 
what is it doing? What is the story doing with women? How are they treated? What do they get to do? What is their agency? I'm trying to think of if if that happens in this book. Um, I yeah, and and so the to wind back, I think this book fails the Bechdel test. Well, hold on. I does off screen count? No, it has to be on the pitch. Ugh. Yeah, I I'm pretty sure this fails the Bechdel test. Hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of the, the, Edith. You, um, like I know, uh, there's a flashback with Maria speaking with her, whatever her cousin or her aunt or whatever. But they talk about cousin. Thomas, cousin. Yeah, they talk about Thomas. Yeah. Um. So I don't know if there are any conversations that pass the Bechdel Does test. Does Edith talk to anyone? No, she only talks to uh, the nurse and Thomas. She talks to the nurse. But Thomas is right there and he's involved in the conversation. Oh, they have to be alone? Yeah, a, a man cannot be involved in the conversation. Oh, right, right, right. And the um, conversation, you know, like, yeah. Hmm. Does Edith ever talk to... See, now I'm... The only person she talks to really after she returns is Senlin. She briefly talks to the captain. Iren? She does not talk to Iren. Iren. See, that... By the time she shows up, Iren is unconscious. Like in the battle. She goes over the edge and then she comes back. She goes over the edge before Gaul shows up with the reinforcements. And by the time she comes back, the Red Hand has already beaten Iren. Because honestly, if they had had a single conversation, <laughs> it never, ever, ever would have touched. Unless they're talking about Senlin, I guess. But, yeah. But I don't think they would talk about But Senlin. like, But so this is my point. Like, yes, you can criticize this book all day long from a feminist perspective. I don't think it's necessarily a problem. This is a story about Thomas Senlin. There isn't anything inherently wrong with having a story about a man. Like... And I don't think we have paper female characters. No, I I, I think we have good female characters. Um, I do think it's interesting that they all buck traditional female roles in, in different ways and some of them in similar ways. But, uh, you know. And I like all of them more than Senlin. I'm starting to... <laughs> I don't. I am starting to <laughs> at least... Okay, other than what is her name? Um, did we get her name? The blonde... No, the the prostitute who tries to bribe him. Yeah, I'm not no, entirely we not sure that she's a prostitute, though. So she's definitely a prostitute. Not only, though, is what I'm... Oh. I, I think her chief occupation is spying. Hmm. But she's not very good at it. Um, hmm. I, don't, I don't think so. She was too desperate. That's true. I don't know. Something's weird with her. I thought there was going to be more to her than there ended up being. Me too. Like when there were a couple of references to her on the ship going up to New Babel. Yes. And I was like, okay, who is she? And I was thinking at first, I'm like, is this Edith? That's what I thought too. um, And I was like, Did she have like some makeover in in some way as a result of, you know, what happened? Or or as an actress, was she just 
made up differently yeah, and he yeah. didn't recognize her. But so when, when it was revealed that she was just the dancing girl at the party in the baths, I was <sighs> like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Dang. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Um, but let's see style. Do you have any other style things? Hmm. Oh, epigraphs changed. Yes. Uh, there's a new book. Yeah. Thomas Sendlin is writing a book. Mm-hmm. This is now a pseudo epistolary story. After his book uh, goes over the edge. Yep. Yep. And he doesn't miss it. <laughs> so how did you feel about these epigraphs? I Versus the old ones. I appreciated having his voice in writing rather than, I don't know, kind of, I guess you... Do you this, still think it's omniscient? Oh, it's definitely omniscient. There were a couple of points that it def, like it straight up went into, uh, like in the in the battle. There was one point that it went into Iron's point of view, mm. where it talked about how, like, like it jumped into her yes, head, sort of. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, it talked about her emotions during the battle. Um, there, they are few and far between when it does this. But every time I'm like, yep, this is just reinforcing. It is for sure a an omniscient narrator. Yeah. So I guess other than kind of being in his head, I like I like his writing more than, okay. his, than his head. Okay. Hmm. Uh, I was a little bummed by the change. Uh, I liked the way the Every Man's Guide built the world again like this just goes to show the the differences between the first and second half of the book and how the things that i really liked about the first half changed (laughs) and became things you liked more (laughs) (laughs) and the epigraphs are emblematic of it you know it it, it's more about the character of thomas semlin and his relationships in the epigraphs and whereas in the first half it was about all right what is this crazy place? I mean, he he does go into what's going on and what he's learned, which I like. A little bit, but it's all in the context of this is my plan. Like half the True. epigraphs are him scouting ships True. to steal and and laying out his plans and yeah. yeah. And learning his job though and Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe that's a good point to jump off to talk about Senlin as a character. Okay. I'm, I'm starting to um, not... In the first half, I disliked him. <laughs> and then I went to, like, neutral, and then... All right. Okay. He is a dramatically different person at the end of this book. He's taking some agency. He's he's making moves. He's showing us that he is more capable than most of the people we see. I think this is also part of why I didn't like the second half of the book as much. I liked who he was as a person more early on when he was like a little stuffy, a little too genteel, fish out of water kind of thing. And by the end of this, he's like a grizzled, scarred pirate. Like okay, he's had I don't multiple. Quite see him he's got like, like a burn scar. He just had like a face injury that's gonna scar him. Like you know, with the the spiked 
guard on the cutlass that he got punched in the face with and it immediately opened wounds. Like, mm. he feels like a completely different person. I don't think so. And it all happened in New Babel. It all happened after he became the Portmaster. I'm proud of the way he Doc changed. Master. I don't remember what the actual title was. Dockmaster. Yeah. Or, no, shoot, maybe it is Portmaster. <laughs> I think it may actually call him both at different points, Like, but there was one that was an official um, title. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But you like him more in the in the second half? Yeah. Okay. He's figuring out what he needs to do and he's making plans. Rather than falling all over the place, falling into this, falling into that, relying on his guide that we have established already is unreliable. Um he's it's like he's making his own guide now. He's making, what do they say, Portmaster? Portmaster Thomas Sutton. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Like he, he took on a role. He took it seriously. Mm-hmm. He did well. He made plans. He thought things through. Yeah, it really was like an appropriate position for him. It allowed him to be academic in a practical way. Which was nice. Yeah. I appreciated him. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm still excited to read on. Uh, I have not started Arm of the Sphinx yet, but I'm probably going to tonight after this. Um, in fact, I need to <laughs> need to figure out where we're going to read to for next episode. Well, I'm I'm definitely more engaged than I was for the first half. I was dragging my feet. Oh, perfect. We're going to read through the end of part two. It's almost exactly halfway through the book. Okay. Yeah. Well, I... Yeah, he got, he got better, this book. But I feel like we can't go into all of the things without talking about the other characters. So I want to I yeah. talk about somebody else. Yeah, let's do it. Um, hmm. You know what? I when he enters the port for the first time, I don't remember the name of the brute, but um, Eren was there, and she perks up at his name. Yes. I thought that he was being a complete idiot for, for running away for running away from her, because I thought that she was Maria's. Agent. Uh, that thought crossed my mind. I definitely, like, I was, this is one of the fun things about, like, being a critical reader, is there's the expected thing, the thing the story tells you to expect, and that is, she's bad news, she's an agent of the commissioner or the Pels or something, they know his name, they're gonna have her kill him, or capture him and take him to be killed. That's what he thinks is happening. Or he, or she's an agent and of then, the commissioner. Yeah, I said that. Oh, okay. Um, I thought you said the Pels. I said both. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, and then, but then the next step is like, okay, but that's what the story is telling me to expect. Now I'm thinking about how could the author subvert this expectation? And that was the point where I'm like, all right, 
he's running away and he's wrong. He should be working with her. She could be left here, like, to watch out for him by Maria. Because in my mind, Maria is the only one who knows his name or cares to know his name until the commissioner who we just left. Mm-hmm. I don't, and then, you know, and then Bancroft even subverts that expectation and makes it like a, a bad thing, but not the bad thing you thought where he's like, all right, he's being dragooned into this job. And then he adds another layer where actually this job can be a good thing for Salmon. So like that type of storytelling is so much more engaging than just go to this place, do this thing, go to this place, do this thing. When you go there, there's dynamicism to the events. Yeah. Yeah. So it it made it more interesting. And we introduce this character who is an absolute brute. And... Uh, she's got to be more, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we start out with her just being... Yeah, I really want to know what her deal is. Like, why was she this loyal bruiser for Gaul? He's got something on her. Like, I thought almost for a moment when he, she took him to the cottage that the kids were hers or her siblings or something like that. Oh, my like gosh, that. no. And... And I was like, "No, oh man, Bancroft, you just got dark here." But that does not fit with her, <laughs> her character at all. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine that. Well, but she was so like friendly with the kids; they were all super excited oh, when she got there. She's a brute softy, right? But like, if they had been her siblings, that would have been the hold that Gaul has over her. He's too like, cruel to her for her to be a daughter. No, I'm I'm not saying that she's his daughter. I'm saying that those kids weren't his. Okay. That's my first thought was he is holding captive her whole family. That's not actually his wife or his children. That's her sister and her nieces and nephews, or that's her mom and her siblings or something like that. That was the first thought that crossed my mind, that Gaul is holding her family captive to force her to work for him. Mm, Not weird. that she is Gaul's daughter or related to him at all. That that was never something I thought. Okay. Yeah, still weird. Like I there must be some hold he had on her. And I think it's important that she was not conscious when she went aboard the Stone Cloud. I think that's going to be a conflict that she wants to go back, that she has a, a responsibility. But we have her in the epigraph. The uh, epilogue. I'm sorry. We have her in the epilogue. Yeah. I'm, she's I'm... conscious. Right. She's not saying take me back. Yeah, because that's going to be a conflict for the second book. You don't like start that. The The epilogue isn't for starting new conflicts, narratively speaking. The epilogue is a denouement. Yeah, but you could have, I don't know. I fully expect there's going to be a conflict with her that arises from her being taken on board unconscious that if she had been given the choice in the moment, she would have said no. I think she would have said no. Um, but I, I don't think she it's, I don't think it's a situation where she doesn't want this. I think she does want this on some level, but she doesn't feel like she can have it. 
Yeah, I think she has a responsibility back in New Babel, that there is some duty she perceives that she has, and that is what Gaul was using as his hold on her. Mm, maybe loyalty to him to protect the kids because she likes them. But I think it's the way that he treats her, he's got something else on her. Yes. It's not the kids, but I'm just I know saying that. like. I feel like you're missing the point of what I'm saying. No, no. I'm just, I'm just trying to explore all of it. Like, hmm. I don't know. We get a lot of hints from her because she doesn't outright say anything. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm saying, I expect in the next book, there's going to be a plot and a conflict revolving around what her backstory is, what the hold that Gaul had over her was, because we don't know that yet. Okay, I mean, sure, I'm just, I just want to explore it more. Okay. Her more, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna. I hope so. I mean, let's start with the fact that she couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. But she's extremely skilled in combat. Yes. And she's got the frame and the build for it. Yeah, I I think she's from a different part of the tower. Um, that there is like some sort of like other society. Mm, um, I don't think she's from I the- could I could see something like that happening. No. Where I don't there's think like she's a the warrior because she's so unlike everybody else that we see. We don't see any other, like, mega huge people rolling around who are, like, crazy warriors like that. Everybody that Senlin attracts and spends time with, by choice, is from outside. They're not creatures of the tower. Mm. I don't think she's one either. I think she's... Mm. So he said she looked like a northerner. I can't remember what he called. Yeah, I mean, she... I'm saying I don't think she's from New Babel. I thought you said she... Oh, that part of the tower, you mean? Yeah. Mm, No, definitely not. Like, she... I think she comes from a society that is, like, more or less breeds people like her. Big, fast, strong, inclined to combat, inclined to martial prowess, and we will run into other people like her eventually. That doesn't fit. Everybody else is an outcast. I think she is as well. That doesn't mean we can't run into other people like her. Sure. (laughs) I just... I'm not saying he's going to, like, befriend another person just like her and bring them into the group. But I'm I'm saying I expect to run into others like her at some point. Probably in an antagonistic role. Maybe. Yeah. Because you need challenges for... This like the, just thematically speaking, we already had like a big showdown between her and the Red Hand. You think she comes from a group that's just like her? Genetically, yeah. No, I mean like brutes and probably. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think she's an outcast. Okay. That's what I'm saying. All right. But I like her, even though she's not. Uh... I don't know. Very personable. I really have like very little opinion on her. I have much stronger feelings about um, Edith, who whom I like a great deal. Edith is fun. 
I'm super fascinated by the arm. Like, uh, clearly the name of the next book is a reference to her arm. The arm of the Sphinx. Uh, I mean, obviously she had a conversation with, with the Red Hand. The red hand he's about like, it. what are you going to tell the Sphinx? And they called, he called her sister. Yep. I think that is a, not like a literal familial no, thing. I think it's a reference to them both having access to the red, whatever it is. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Which she keeps talking about as the, the, the damnedest, price. the damnedest uh, deals or whatever. Yes. Yikes. Yeah, the damnedest prices to pay. But also, why is he so familial with her when clearly she's only had this arm for a very short time? Three months, right? Three months? Well, he's been in the tower for over six months now. He didn't spend that much time. He spent a lot of time, like a couple of months in the baths, and then he spent another few months in New Babel. She's probably had her arm for about six months. Mm, okay. Yeah, there's a, there's still- one point towards the end of the book where somebody says, like, more than six months. And it may even be that Senlin himself is like, he first met her over six months ago. Or she spent the last six... That's what it was. He says, like, she spent the last six months being a pirate. I My heart broke for her. I wouldn't say my heart broke for her. Um, She's... Oh, can you... I'm imagining what she went through. She Oh, yeah, is awful. a farmer. This stupid little parlor that she had to go into decided to mark her and just did it so brutally Mm -hmm. that they... Got infected. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's completely ridiculous. She didn't deserve any of that. No, she didn't. And and the fact... Her whole arm? Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. Uh... I don't think she would have been happy going back to the farm though. Like, I think, I think this is one of those ways that like you, you have to go down before you can go up mm-hmm. literally in her case where she's expelled down and then ascends the tower. But like, just in terms of, I think she's going to find happiness that would not have been possible had she gone back to her previous life. I, I think you're probably right, and I hope you're right. Or maybe not happiness, but fulfillment. But I also think she would have been happy at the farm without whatever jerk that she married. I mean, if she had just yet never had to deal with any of that. Right. Yeah, sure, but that's not... Or if he would just go away. Yeah. Get gangrene himself and (laughs) piss off. Very generous, Lauren. Uh, I don't know what the diseases are in this world. So. Seems like it's it's pretty standard things. But <laughs> But yeah, uh I was I was glad she showed up. I was a little surprised that we got another female character in quick succession with Iron who's like a badass. Um like that's when I go back to that point I made earlier about how all three of the major female characters other than Maria, who's barely in the story. um, All three of them are 
not traditionally feminine characters. Uh, two of them are for sure badass female characters. And Voletta, I think, has potential for that. Where she's like, lives in the riggings now. And like, like I could see her becoming like a super skilled fighter because she's all agile and, you know. And I hope he doesn't do that. Because that's like, I think that's just leaning too much into the trope that you don't like where all the female characters end up being like the same, like essentially men they're, they're men in female clothing, right. Where they're just fighters and, and that's their only not role. dynamic, yeah. not personal, not intriguing, just yeah. pummeled. Cause it feels they, good they just to have do, a character. Who's they just female. do traditionally masculine things in traditionally masculine roles. And they just happen to have boobs. Okay. Well, so I've yeah. talked about this with you before. So I've, I've heard this and I think I agree. First wave feminism was allowing (laughs) women to have to not just have one role or one path or one type of trait. Okay. Allowing them to do masculine things or whatever you want to label them, not traditional role things. So I okay, and then that was not how I've let me finish. Okay, go. Then we move on to appreciating women who have or act outside of what we call their traditional role, having masculine characteristics, doing masculine things like sports. Then we have Title Nine, where it's encouraged and funded. Sure. Right. What we haven't hit is valuing women with feminine, traditionally feminine, valuing feminine things, feminine traits. I'll give you an example for me. Anytime I say I play sports, I work in a men's field. Yeah. Whatever thing that I'm doing where I'm the only woman, I am up and down praised for. If I talk about how, I don't know, I'm an accomplished seamstress or a knitter or something like that, I don't get praised for it. Okay. It gets crossed, like passed over Mm -hmm. for valuing my characteristics that are masculine or whatever. Gotcha. Always. That's understandable. So I knew that those were valued. And if I wanted somebody to like me or feel that I'm strong or whatever it is, (laughs) I would talk about the things that I knew that they would appreciate that I was doing that were not traditional. I don't talk about the things that I like or that I do that are traditional because those aren't valued. Yeah. I, I understand. We're not to that point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But like, and see, this is I, one of the the things that I like. Um, you know, there are absolutely criticisms you can level at Brandon Sanderson's portrayal of female characters in some of his books. Uh, but one of the things that I do appreciate is that he goes out of his way to write dynamic, strong female characters in traditionally feminine roles. Like when I think about a character like Steris. Steris is a good example. You know. 
we're like we are taught or shown to value yeah like i i i like that he and and he does have the badass female characters you know like we've got vin in mistborn sure we've sure. got you know yasna in the stormlight archive whatever like but then we see with Steris how yeah. like her, her more feminine characteristics are extremely valuable. Yeah, and and so I think a lot of authors, you know, in the last 20, 25 years, as there has been a big push in genre fiction to include more representation of female characters, um, you know, going back to this whole idea of the Lord of the Rings fails the Bechdel test, the Lord of the Rings is far from the only fantasy series from basically the 50s onward to 2000 you know the majority of those series probably failed the Bechdel test you know and and so there was a a big push to include more representation and I think the easy way out that a lot of authors took was to just write the female character that you dislike the one who's basically just a man with boobs i okay i like them and i definitely did when i was younger always mm -hmm. but at this point i'm bored mm -hmm. they fall flat yeah and this is this is one area that like you know definitely female authors tend to do better than male authors like because they understand like you, you, women better. Probably, yeah, I, I mean, you that's get my a guess. lot more female characters who are mothers and sisters first, rather than assassins or soldiers or whatever. Sure. You know, I mean, I think about uh, N.K. Jemison or uh, Octavia Butler, um, Nalo Hopkinson. You know, like they they all have characters who are like have strong feminine ideals at their core and yeah they can be badass but they're like they're badass women they're not just like like being a woman is a major part of who they are you know um and yeah. so and, and that's something that i just don't see that often in I'm not saying I never see it, but I don't see it as often with male writers. And I don't really see it in this book. Um, like being a woman is not a core identity thing for, at least as far as we have seen with Edith or Iron. No, no. Yeah. Or Violetta or, well, we haven't Voletta. seen it. Yeah, we, I think there, there is potential with Violetta, but she could go either way. She's just such a blank slate at this point. You know? I mean, yeah, I, I guess we get a little bit of her inner thoughts when they talk about what happened with their oh, backstory. Yeah. And, and when she gets on the train and, and it's like, again, omniscient narrator is like yeah. what Adam didn't know when she got on the train was that she was she always, yeah. Yeah. She didn't tell him for months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think back to another female writer who passed away this year, who she had, five six kids and then she started writing and had a big career i'm not talking sci-fi fantasy she didn't write any sci-fi fantasy okay who who 
I need to figure out her author name because I can't remember it. But what she says is like, yes, you can have it all. As in, you can have the family, be the mother, do all the traditional things. And you can also have the big career. You just can't have it all at the same time, is what she says. Gotcha. And I also think of, I mean, not not necessarily a woman that I agree with all the time, but Nancy Pelosi had a big family, and mm. then she did politics. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, are there any other characters we want to talk about here? Um we haven't talked about Adam. Or Fingal. Uh, we've talked about Fingal a little bit with his family. We just said that he has a family. We didn't talk about him. Yeah. Uh, he he definitely surprised me when he showed up. Adam or Fingal? Fingal. Well, he was the first one to show up again. Yes. Um, and I was and I kind of laughed when, when he did, where I was like, well, there went that whole thing. <laughs> that major point that I made about the style and structure of this book. <laughs> Uh, he's just slimy. He, um, I don't see it. I can't remember. Did, did you ever watch Boardwalk Empire? No. He reminds me of like the main character of Boardwalk Empire. I honestly don't see him. Who's like a sleazy crook businessman with like a sort of hidden heart of gold. But also, like, you can't really get over how sleazy he is just because he is a family man. Mm, I don't necessarily see Fingal that way. Hmm. Yes, he's all about the bottom line. But he also tells us that he has to be. He has learned this lesson from the tower. Oh, yeah. That he has to be. See, but this is a... I mean, this transcends just like any one character. This is like a thematic point in the book. Um, it's a question of, do you buy into this philosophy? Do you allow yourself to be ruled by the cynicism of the tower? And Senlin says no. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And yeah. ultimately, he comes out on top because he said no. Because he, in the face of all odds, found friends. Even if those friends are not like true trustworthy all the time, but he is like convincing them, cracking those, those outer walls. We saw him do it twice already in the baths and Mm -hmm. now we're seeing him do it again. Yep. And, and so like Fingal makes a great foil for Thomas Senlin in a lot of ways, because he has bought so fully into this idea of there is no trust. There is no friendship you do what is selfish and that is the only thing you should do because you have to and and thomas was like well why did you tell me he's like because it would have helped me out if you had done that he's like i wasn't telling you to do that to help you out i was doing it to help because it would have been better for me like and and even after that thomas then turns around and puts all of his trust in the people that he has surrounded himself with yeah i i think you're absolutely right about how people interact with the tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. Fingal bought in. 
Yeah. I think, but I also think that there's like his conscience didn't leave him. I think it's still whispering in his ear and he hears Thomas speaking the same words that his conscience is and he he's thinking about it and i i think it's i think it's getting to him i think it's needling at him what what makes you think that what in the text makes you think that is there, it just you want it to their convert well first of all the pattern of the book we've just had two characters that he turned around who said that they were unsavable we're told by other people that they're unsavable and then on top of that, their conversation about the him giving the workers a raise. Okay. He doesn't say. <sighs> he was pretty ruthless in that conversation. But he doesn't he doesn't say hmm. He doesn't say they don't deserve it. He doesn't say like he makes the argument. Oh, he absolutely says they don't deserve it. He he talks about them as subhuman, and he's like, I pay them what they deserve. They deserve pennies. You're trying to give them value by giving them a raise, and that's a problem for me. Take the raise away, and if they complain, kill one of them as an example. But also, he, he speaks to Senlin in his language. He says, look... I, he, he doesn't just like lord it over Sunland. He says like, look, I have to do this. Okay. You see my family, they deserve better. I have right. to do this. Well, yeah, because that's, that's like his ambition is I want to get my family to a higher floor where they live the good life. Yeah. But he's, he's defending his actions. He's on the back foot saying, I have to do this. You don't understand. I have to do this. Okay. That's why I think that he's getting to him. And he didn't just have her, like, throw him overboard. Why did he bring him to his house? What was the point of being like, look, I'm a family man. Look at my vulnerabilities. You see them? There they are. Well, I mean, Senlin's not a threat in that way. Like, if if Senlin had been... He doesn't trust anybody. Why should he trust but, him? But he knows Senlin isn't the sort of person who's going to be like, I'm going to threaten your family. Like, you know. But why? Like, why? Hmm. I think it was like a show of power. I really do. How is that a show of power? Senlin talks about it. He's like, how much work and effort, like how much money had to go into. Like, this house? Yeah. Having, having a warehouse in this city and a house inside the warehouse okay. just to make this one domestic scene. If I'm Fingal doing that, then I have all my servants for the show. But I don't have my wife and kids at all. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't see that as a sign of him secretly being a good man. No, I think he's being needled at. Hmm. I think he's maybe going to listen. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Um, okay, sorry. Who I else mean, did we have? I was wrong on like 85% of the things I said in the first episode. <laughs> and Lauren was right about most of them. So we'll see if that continues. <laughs>
Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, so we haven't talked about Adam. Okay. It was really driven home here how much his entire world revolves around his sister. Yeah. Like that he spent months repairing his relationship with Thomas and at the drop of a hat betrayed him again. His ups and downs are, saw, yeah. are all around her circumstances. Yep. He doesn't really live for himself. Yeah. Voletta has the gravity and he just orbits her. Yep. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have dreams or ambitions as far as I can tell. So the question is which one of Adam or Voletta is going to die? Adam. One of them is going to die. Shoot. Why do you, ah, I don't want that. <laughs> I mean, it would make sense that he would sacrifice himself to save her. Yeah. 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 And I, I think she... Hmm. She feels a little stronger to me. I, maybe it's because she has her own ambitions. Well, see, to me, he's a stronger character than she is because she's such a blank slate. I feel like I don't know Valletta at all. I think I know her. Like, there's... I think I know. Well, her. you just you just uh, bond with the idea of her because she's so much like you in terms of the like sense of adventure and daring and adrenaline seeking. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you those. Um, <laughs> but I I guess I get a little bit of her character from her her quips and her interactions with um what's his name? Rodion. Rodion. The, the whoremaster? Yeah. The the horganist? Oh, god! I got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> and then I got even more when, when he, he the, the captain made that quip, called him a horganist, and Rodian was like, we got a comedian. I wish I'd come prepared with a joke. <laughs> and then just <laughs> kills him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So their interactions are weird. They are weird. Um, and... So we were given the impression throughout all this part that like he was keeping her virtue intact because Adam was like, you know, paying paying for him and everything. And then a toss away line toward the end, Rodion's like, I don't want to lose her. I'll have to find somebody else to keep my bed warm. And she bites him. Yeah. like In a flirting way. Like I think. And he likes it. Yep. Like there's a. There's definitely some rose-colored glasses on Adam where he's convincing himself that things aren't happening that are happening. And and, and that and Valetta she's may, tortured. Yeah, Valletta may not have been as unwilling uh, in that situation as we thought. She, okay. That she was comfortable with Rodion. Now, like, she probably didn't want to, like, you know, have to, almost certainly didn't want to, like, be sold off as a whore. But, you know, be like auctioned to the to the highest bidder or anything like that. But I I think Adam was seeing her in a in an idealized light. And that's going to be another source of conflict in the next book. Okay. Do you remember when Rodion? Rodion. Rodion. Sorry. Rodion um, is talking about selling her off to Adam in front of her. Or he makes a reference to it. Yeah. And what does she do? She jokes about it. Yeah. Like, well, they won't like what they get. And then she rubbed her belly and I was like, oh my God, is she pregnant? Yeah. She makes a, she's like, she rubs her belly. She makes a reference to like, they'll get a fat one or something. 
she said something about oh, being I don't fat. That. Yes. And mm. rubbed her belly. And I was like, shit. Is he. Mm. Adam's just like overlooking everything that goes on with her. Yeah. 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 It's like. I don't I, think I she's think... unhappy. I think she's enjoying her shows. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. So I see. Um, this is a sign of like my trust in Bancroft as a writer. I, I see him doing elegant things at the end of this book to lay the groundwork for not just a central conflict for Thomas Selen, because he already has that, but sub conflicts with the characters around him, the crew now of the, what is it called? Stone cloud. Yeah. Um, that like each of them has their own Edith has the arm. There's something, the, the cost of what she has to do to have this arm. And they could call do yeah. at any point against whatever. Yeah. And then, and then iron, I think is going to have a conflict in regards to her, um, chain, her, her Being responsibilities yanked. as she perceives them back at Port Gaul in new Babel. And then Adam and Volenta are going to like discover that they don't want the same things in life. Uh, you know, and so each, each of the members of the crew is going to have their own problems independent of what had already been established. Like previously Adam's big conflict was I got to rescue my sister and her conflict was I got to get out of this whorehouse. I, um, I don't, I don't know if, if what she, what he says she wants is what. I know. I'm agreeing with you. What okay. I'm saying is that's going to cause a new conflict. She already because knows. Because we were, we that... were seeing all this through Adam's perspective. Yeah. This is, and this is what I was talking about earlier, where it's not just go to the place, do the thing, go to the place, do the thing. What Bancroft does adds layers each time you go to a new place and do a new thing. She already knew that their paths were not the same. Yes. She's been yeah. aware of it for but a long time. But we haven't seen, we're not getting the story from her perspective. That's my point, is we're getting it from Adam's perspective. And now it's going to be a conflict because of that. Because Adam has one thing in his head, and now he actually has to like interact and like live with his sister and, and her wants and desires and ambitions. Well, he's still got the rose-colored glasses on. Yeah, and that's the conflict. You said they were going to have a have find out that they aren't going on the same path. I think she's already she's known for a long time. He's going to find out. Maybe. Functionally the same thing, Lauren. Okay, okay. What I'm saying is they are a unit, and that unit is going to come into conflict. Yep. Because they don't want the same thing. Never did. Yes. I think it's, I think, but I think the point is to be made because I think it's relevant to their characters that, that it wouldn't be the same thing. Okay. Anyways, who else do we have? Um, I don't have any other characters to talk about. Like I, I really think we've kind of covered all the, the major the points hand. here. I mean, he's dead. He's, uh, he was, he was a, an animal. The only interesting thing about him was what he was saying in the, that he got like weirdly philosophical in the last battle there. 
yeah, where he was talking true. about like yeah. we're we're vapors in rigid form, just like esoteric. Didn't we get jabber. something about he's been in that state for a long time? I don't remember you. Uh, yeah, he's like over a hundred years old or whatever. Yeah, or at least that was the impression that I got. I yeah, because he says this is only the third snowstorm in a century. Hundred and seven years. I don't think he says specifically 107. He says this is only the third snowstorm this century. But. I might be thinking of something else I read today. Yeah, I think you are. Uh, but either way, like, I got the impression that he knew that not because he's some, like, weather nut who keeps track of these things, but because he lived that whole century and this is only the third snowstorm he's seen. He makes reference to some weird facts Yeah. when he does talk. Um, yeah, I don't know, like, yeah, I don't really have any other, other characters to talk about. I have predictions. Okay. I kind of made my predictions already about like how I see the conflicts spooling out in the next book. Okay. So we have Thomas figuring out. Um, piecing together the things that we already pieced together with um, with the fires always needing to be yep. burning and the mm -hmm. water always needing to be pumped. Yep. And we know that the towers, I can say this, the tower is building. The tower is still building. Oh, is being built. Nope. I can say building. Oh, you're, you're saying that the tower is like self-creating because nope. of the clockwork nope nope i'm making a reference to what um how it used to be said in english okay that is proper all right Lauren. thank you but i i'm not taking out the possibility that there is maybe intelligence there we already saw the clockwork a, spider yeah and we have this arm of hers that is clearly advanced technology. Yep. Who knows what else is going on. Um, anyways, he starts to put that together. Mm -hmm. And I'm still wondering who's at the top here. I'm like, I'm really fascinated knowing that this is a completed four book series. And that this, I mean, we've had various numbers given, but we've only seen four levels of the tower. And there are for sure over 30. So either we're going to be skipping some levels or we're going to see a lot more in the coming books. I... You know. I think the Sphinx is one of the big players here, and I don't know if it's maybe magic or artificial intelligence, A being, or an organization. Yeah. I think it's a big player. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, let's see. As far as our characters go... Well, I, we didn't rescue Maria at the end of this book. And I don't see her as being a damsel in distress. I did appreciate that 
Senlin called out toward the end of the book that he's like, I know she has changed. She must have changed a lot. He's like, I don't know what she went through. Um, but, but he thinks about how much he has changed and reflects on the fact that she must have changed just as much as well. And I appreciated that. Like that was one of the few things I was worried about with this character in the first half mm-hmm. was how he, for a lot of it seemed to like just assume that she was going to be the same person wanting the same thing. Um, and, and now he's recognizing that when he finds her again, if he finds her again, but he's making the assumption that he'll succeed. Um, when he finds her again, she will not be the same person. And he does come across as always naive, but at least he's learning. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I don't think she's a damsel in distress. I think she's making her own plans to get out of her situation or stalling or delaying, whatever it is. Um, or escaping on her own. Uh, she was obviously very capable with how quickly she ascended the tower. Sure. And... I mean, she she has the same problem he does, where she assumes the best of people and then is taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. With Edith, I think you're right. Something's going to happen because of the arm. Yeah. I, that I, we won't I, her, like. Her arm is going to be, I think, the central sub-conflict of this book, of the next book, rather. Um, I mean, it's called The Arm of the Sphinx. Like, that. that's a pretty big signpost. Uh, Adam, man, oh, I did feel for him. I, like, thinking of that tortured mask that they put on people to take their eyes out. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he can't. He's no he's not showing any signs of being able to engage with reality. So I don't see him learning. He he keeps doing what he has to do because you're right, he revolves around his sister. Yeah. And I can't wait to get to know her. She's interesting. Yeah, I figured you would. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, shoot, I'm trying to think of what I'm forgetting my other predictions. Anyways, you go. No, I'm, I'm ready to move on, do favorite scenes in final draft. We're already over an hour and 20 minutes on the episode. So it's pretty late night. Okay. Uh, yeah. So favorite scenes. Uh, do you want to start or me? You. So I have a, an honorable mention and that is the piano scene when he gives Maria a piano, the flashback. Mm. I, I really liked like just how that built their relationship. I talked about it a lot last episode, but what it showed about Thomas Semlin as a person. Um, yeah. So, but my third favorite honestly was the battle. The Battle of the Snowstorm. Uh, I thought it was really well written. It was fun. It was engaging. Um, 
you know, it, it, it is on my mind a lot recently how um, in the last few years, like I tend to glaze over reading a lot of action scenes. Um, I care more about the dialogue and the character interactions and it takes like a really well-crafted action scene now to grab me and keep my attention on individual word choices and things like that. And this one, this one did it. I enjoyed it. Good visuals, a uh, good set piece on the, the side of the tower. Loved the snowstorm. The idea of the, you know, the water tanks breaking open and freezing on the deck of the ship. Um, you know, the, the red hand, the glowing, you know, uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. Your third favorite? Um, I think I'm going to pick the scene of Thomas saying goodbye to Maria when she went off to college. It's my second favorite scene. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was a really good scene. It was a really good scene. I think it was the most emotional scene in the book. No. Mm -mm. Really? Interesting. Definitely not. Hmm. Well, I'll be curious to hear what you but think. But that was, was it more. was really sweet. We get to see... Him, like, running, realizing he made a mistake by not going to see her off. Yeah, and and... Her feelings and her, I don't know, her giving him a kiss. Yeah. I did appreciate that that sequence made it clear that, like, there is not this massive age gap. He wasn't teaching her from a little child all the way up. He was a brand new teacher just stepping in his first year, and she was already, like, about to graduate. She gave him a run for yeah, his money. Yeah, she gave him hell. <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Okay. Uh, your second favorite, then. Uh, dang it, you make it hard. What scenes did you like? <laughs> A lot of them. Maybe the scene with Teru, the last scene that we have with him. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely coming back. I don't think that was goodbye. Yeah, he's definitely coming back. A hod? Is that what they call it? Hod, yeah. Ooh, also we got more about what a hod is. Because Adam saw them. Yeah, like the, the back halls and the... stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he didn't give us much detail. He just said they were working no. back there. And it was scary and awful. Yeah, I... Uh... I mentioned this last episode and you said you didn't want to know the book titles of the remaining books. Do you know what they are now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so book three is the Hod King. So there's definitely, definitely something that's going to happen there. Also, um, I was reading the AMA with him on oh, Reddit okay. and somebody loved him mm. and I had to stop reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, always dangerous to go into author AMAs because people will ask end of series questions and Yep. Yep. <laughs> so uh yeah, and then my favorite scene was the kites. 
the kite when he he teaches her how to fly a kite and then proposes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a romantic. It was a good scene. We talked, to, we talked about the pianos last time, or the we, piano gift. Yep. Didn't you already say the kites? Yeah, and I said last episode that both of those will probably be on my list. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what about the piano scene with her at the parties? When she's just like, this is stupid. I'm going to be myself oh. for once. It's you're not, fine. You're not attached to her like no. in-tower flashbacks. No, not really. I was frustrated. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. At her naivety. Well, his too. His frustrated me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why weren't you frustrated with him? I was at points. Okay. We just also get a lot more and we get to see him working his way through it. Okay. So. Favorite scene, Lauren? Definitely Red Hand. Uh, Which one? Starting with the point where he accidentally breathes in the dust and he's hallucinating. Yeah. Okay. And says, like, who's there? And then starts to dismantle everybody around them and almost Thomas, too. And then, thank God, Edith comes up and they have their epic battle. Oof. And then yeah. her arm fails. Like, yeah, and drops him off oh the side of the building. Oh my gosh, that was, <laughs> that was great. Yeah. I was fully engaged. Nice. Yeah. At that point. Yeah, it was a good, really good action sequence. Like, And I, I was like, who is he? Who is she to him? Who are they to each other? And why, like, why is she hesitating? What, what is going on? Yeah. And why does he have all this? Like, who is he to have all the secret knowledge? He seems like somebody who might be bigger than the commissioner. But he's working for him. Yeah, I think he's just a pawn. He's, like, out on loan from the Sphinx or, you know, whatever. I could see out on loan, but clearly he's much more capable than the commissioner, who has to have a breathing mask to even go outside. (laughs) The hypochondriac. Jeez Louise. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But that was... And then her arm fails. Yep. And she's like, sometimes it also fails at just the right moment. I kind of wonder if there's something to that. Oh, that, yeah. If there's like more, a, a deeper meaning behind when it fails. Mm, or somebody intentionally controlling her arm. Oh, I don't think so. Because she has to like put the individual vials in. Yes. But. Nah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about how this magic stuff works to to say. Well, it's soft magic. But I don't see... I have a feeling there's going to be harder magic. Like, this has a... The feel of, like, pseudo-scientific. So is it... You know, like, technology Or is it Well, it's magic. magical technology. Like, it, and it, that's the sort of thing that, like... I expect we're going to get some actual rules and, and explanations for how um, how this works. And we're going to get a lot of it in the next book. Hmm. Okay. So, All right. Well, uh, I think that's a wrap for our conversation of the book itself. But, of course, we still have the final draft. Uh, Lauren, what are you drinking over there? Okay. So I'm drinking 
of course, I mean, most of the time we end up with local stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is from Broomfield, my hometown, from a brewery called Odd 13. And it's another hazy IPA because that's what's in right now. Yeah. Has been for <laughs> like seven years. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got mosaic and El Dorado hops. Um, 6% alcohol. Okay. And Odd 13 is kind of known around here for their uh, very nerdy cans and names. Yep. So I can like I can tell it's their beer from across the store because there's yeah, they have a comic book style. Their labels are distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And this one is called Noob. Nice. It's for Senlin. It is. <laughs> he is a noob. He's a noob. Definitely a noob. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's the beer? Talk about the beer a little it's bit. It's good. Uh, smells very, very sweet and fruity. Can I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, it is like almost, almost sugary, which I don't expect from a... An IPA. It's all hops. You guys, it's all hops. Hmm. Nice haze. Um, yeah, like, say what you will. Like, obviously, IPAs are not my favorite style. Or the various sub-styles of IPAs are not my favorite things in the world. But the hop is a an unbelievably versatile plant. <laughs> like... There's so many different varieties and the way brewers can get crazy different flavors out of them is really impressive. Resins differ. Yeah. Um, hmm. What else? But I also, get like pear out of that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a good hazy. Um, but I will say like I, I could tell when I was sipping it that this wasn't made last week, which sure. which yeah. would have been ideal. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we're hitting like two, three months, <laughs> you get the drop off, which isn't, isn't fair to the brewery to judge right. when it's older. Like the, the hops degrade quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, as for myself, I am drinking an IPA uh, from Weldworks. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's easy for us to get Weldworks because Lauren works there. But more than that, like Weldworks has good good names for for beers. Um, this I is mean, a if we planned months ahead. Well, yeah, that, then I could pick. The I'm names. still like, yeah, I'm still trying to get <laughs> Lauren to sneak in a couple of names like months in advance so that I can prep for future books. Um, we'll see if I can make that happen. But this beer is a double dry hopped West Coast style India pale ale. I don't think it says what uh, hop varieties are we, on here. We don't put it on the cans anymore because people will not try beers if they think that they don't like a hop uh, variety. <laughs> That's dumb. Yes, it is. Thank huh. you. Well, this is 6.8% alcohol by volume. And yeah, like, like that other one, this is a little old. Um, Gurren Lagen? 
Oh. It says Gurren Logan. Yeah. On the can. Uh-huh. Is that you? It wasn't me. Oh. Well, yeah, this was canned mm, three months ago. So. That's, yeah. that's the... Mm. I mean, it's not like... So, uh, I've opened a couple of different cans from this four-pack this evening. I drank one that was very nice. I drank one that was not good. And then I'm... Or, or I should say I took a sip of one that was not good and I dumped it. And then I opened we're, this one. Yeah, we're not selling this one anymore. We only grabbed yeah. it because the name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the one I'm drinking, it's not amazing. It's not terrible. But um, like Lauren said, the name is the most important thing. And that is Upward Spiral. Here we go. Next Next level of the tower. Yeah, you're going to be riding some air currents around the outside of the tower. <laughs> yeah. So, that is a wrap for episode 201 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, as I mentioned, we are going to be covering parts one and two of The Arm of the Sphinx. As always, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on Coffee. that's ko-fi, coffee.com slash inkingoutloud for a one-time donation. But in the meantime, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.